Genesis chapter 13. So we, in our post-Christian worldview, have some issues that we must deal with. And most of you would agree with me about that. We have issues of not seeing the forest for the trees. But what I mean by post-Christian is probably not what you think when you think post-Christian. When I say post-Christian, I'm referring to any time after the advent of Christ. This is what I mean when I say post-Christian. And the primary issue that I'm speaking about is the manner in which we separate the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And this applies to many who hold to the doctrines of grace. They would proudly claim to hold to all five points of Calvinism. Because when we do that, we do that in a New Testament mindset, not in an entire Bible mindset. But since we know that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. Because of that, if the doctrines of grace do not work in the Old Testament, they don't work at all. And we know that because the Lord does not change. Therefore, you, children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3, 6. And in the New Testament, we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. You may be sitting there getting a little anxious. Maybe, I don't know that this is going to actually hold. But fear not, because Jesus told us, if you abide in my word, and truly are, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And because this is truth, because this is truth, the doctrines of grace are, are shown to us throughout the whole Bible and specifically in the book of Genesis. We don't have to look solely to the New Testament to see these truths or to behold these truths. We've already been had that T, that total depravity demonstrated to us in Genesis 6, 5, where we read, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in chapter 12, we witness the you of the unconditional election of God in action, beginning in verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And we saw the L of that acronym, limited atonement, in the call of Abraham. Because that call was specific to him, for him. It wasn't an open casting call. It wasn't offered to all. And it wasn't intended for all. God specifically chose this man as his man. And he did the same thing for Noah. And he's going to do the same thing for Isaac. 
And he did the same thing for Job. And we never question ever the fairness of God in the specific choosing of those men. We, we will never see ugly memes out there on the internet about the choosing of these men. Never hear sermons preached that God did not specifically call and choose these men. And the reason for this is that we don't see this choosing, this call, as being the same choosing and call as the New Testament. And this is not seeing the forest for the trees. Because, I ask you, good sir, if this call, this choosing, is not the same call in choosing as the, cho- the call and the choosing of the New Testament, if this, this, if this call isn't the same, why do we find Abel in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Why is Enoch there? Why is Noah there and Abram? How can these men be found in the hall of faith? How can Abraham be the father of faith if this call and choosing isn't the same? And then we witnessed the eye of that acronym in TULIP, that irresistible grace found in verse 4 of chapter 12. So Abram went up as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And this isn't the first time that we've seen the effectual choosing of God linked with that irresistible grace of God on a man. We saw that previously in the life of that man Noah, Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And he was talking about all men, not just some. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the earth. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, verses 5 through 8. And then the rest of chapter 12. And into our chapter today, tells us, shows us the evidence of that P in TULIP, the perseverance of the saints. And that we don't get, we don't glory in the God of our salvation when we read of that sin of Abram and the lying about his wife and the cowardice of trying to protect himself at her expense. This is evidence that we are missing the forest for the trees. That we're no different than Abraham. And chapter 12 continues the telling of the life of Abram and how the Lord guided, protected, and provided for him. The guiding can be seen first in verse 1 in the command to go to a land that he would show Abram. Then in verse 7, when after Abram had obeyed the command to go, we are told, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And there we are told that there was a severe famine in the land and that Abram decided to heed, or I'm sorry, to head down to Egypt where he presumed that there was no famine. Yeah, there might have been some danger going into Egypt, but there was no danger of starvation in Egypt. You see, Abram understood the pagan culture that he lived in. 
He understood that the wife that he had been given could be hazardous to his health because of her beauty. The other men who had power, the muscle to take her, would kill him like a tick on a hound to get what they wanted. And he was right, as told to us in Genesis chapter 12. So he concocted this plan to save himself from these powerful men in the telling of the half-truth that Sarai was his sister. And this ruse worked. And it made Abram a wealthy man. And this event in the life of Abram is a classic example of not seeing the forest for the trees. Let me explain that saying to you. That saying, not seeing the forest for the trees, means that a person is so focused on a specific detail that they miss the big picture. They're looking at what is directly in front of them. They're drilling down on a specific aspect of detail. And while that detail is important, they never look up and they, they never see the big picture the reality of what makes that detail so important. It's like they focus in on the single first brush stroke that Bob Ross makes on a canvas, analyzing the color choice, the placement and the style of the stroke. They study the choice of the brush that he used and maybe even the amount of ink on that brush or in that stroke. That stroke that he made, it's exacting, it's beautiful, it's important. But they never zoom out to gain understanding as to why that brush stroke is amazing. They miss the meaning of the brush stroke by focusing solely in on it. And they can't comprehend the meaning behind that stroke and how that amazing stroke works and what makes that amazing stroke so amazing the fact that it's used on this canvas to create a masterpiece you see God had made a promise to Abram when he called that man when he told him to go from your country and your kindred to and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and so Abraham went and as the Lord had told him to go he went Verse 4, chapter 12. But in his going, he also took with him Lot. Lot was a tree. And even though God appeared to him and promised to give him a land, Abraham left that land that had been promised him because of outward conditions and apparently adverse situations. And he went to a foreign land where there was ease and comfort. The famine was a tree. And once he got to Egypt, he then made concessions to be able to survive there in the lie that he told concerning Sarai. Again, the threat of violence to him, while real, was a tree. You see, this, the Lord had called this man. He had chosen this man, made promises to this man, promises of a land and of a people. And those promises became trees for this man. Abraham, he could have concluded, I, I have to tell this half-truth concerning Sarai to keep myself alive. After all, how can I become a great nation if I'm dead? 
But then again, how could you become a great nation without a wife? And really, he could have thought, what good is a land if I die of starvation? And so, Abram helped God in keeping his promise by lying about his wife and leaving the land. And then the Lord refocuses Abram by using a pagan to get him back on track, which is what led us to verse 1 from today, where we're told, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had first made the altar. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And this is a summarization of the events of our account today. We're given key, the key players in it the situations that they found themselves in, and even the potential problem that they will face. But they were also given that last sentence of verse 4. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And there we see that P of tulip once again. The perseverance of the saints. He had returned to the place where we are told that God had last appeared to him, the place where God is said to have last spoken to him, the place where he made an altar to the Lord. He returned to the forest, not to the place of the forest. He returned to the forest, to the one that is the creator and sustainer of all those trees. And then just like in the last chapter, Right on the heels of Abram hearing or seeing God, there's a problem revealed. In chapter 12, God appears to Abram, tells him of the land that he's going to give to Abraham. That's verse 7. And then verse 10, we told that there's a famine in the land. And here, we are told of Abram calling upon the name of the Lord, verse 4. And then beginning in verse 5, we're told once again of how God directs the steps of that man. Verses 5 through 13. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Verses 5 and 6 are told to us just like verse, verse 10 was of the last chapter. They're just stated facts. Verse 10 of last chapter, chapter 12, there's a famine in the land. Verses 5 and 6 
They had lots of flocks and herds so that they couldn't, the land couldn't support them. And we in our human minds, and this includes Abram at this point, we very often, we are going to use logic when thinking about things of the Lord. We, we use the logic like one plus one equals two. Famine equals move. Strife equals separation. And when we do this, when we use this human logic, we very often are missing the forest for the trees. But you see, Abraham loved Lot a lot. And this is evidenced by him taking Lot when he left from Haran. It's evidenced by the fact that Lot was given possessions and will be evidenced later when Abram rescues Lot from captivity. It's really possible that since Sarai was barren and Abram had been given the promise by God that he would become a great nation, he could have looked at Lot as his son. After all, he was the son of his brother who had died. And all the law, although the law concerning the continuation of a brother's line hasn't been given yet, Abram could have looked at Lot, seen Lot as a son. He may have loved him like a son, may have treated him like a son, envisioned that he would be the means that God would make a great nation of him. So this could have been his desire. But there began to be some troubling situations that made that desire, that thing about Lot, the reality of the desire to not come to pass. And once again, God is just using the natural, very supernaturally in this separation. And the thing that he used was the stuff that they had. And the stuff that they had were being used to cause a division between Lot and Abram. Given that situation at hand, there wasn't enough grazing for both the herds of Lot and of Abram. The choice that Abraham made to separate seems like a logical choice. They could have just sold their stuff too, by the way. But instead, he made this logical choice. But the manner in which he does it though, the giving Lot the option to choose where he would go, that just seems very magnanimous on, on his part. And before we get really judgy on Lot about the decision that he made. We really should just back up and sit down for a second and really take a look at our own decision-making. Because what Lot did was logically sound. Logically, it was a great decision. We, we have the accounts of Sodom and Gomorrah given to us. And we know that there were only two of the five cities that were in the area. We know what it is that's going to happen. We know how wicked they are. We, by the grace of God, are given foreknowledge concerning these places. And even the events are going to transpire because of them. Lot was not. And here in our verses from today, we're told why he chose this valley. It was green well-watered, beautiful. In fact, we're told that it was like the garden of the Lord. So answer me this. Who in their right mind would have chosen anywhere else? Stop for a second. 
Determine which one of your actions, which one of your decisions, which one of them can you point to that prove that you would not have done and chosen just like Lot did? That you haven't chosen just like Lot did? So there's some rough neighborhoods in that area. What can you do? The good far outweighs the bad. We read this account and we know that it's a bad decision. And yet how often, how very often do we make the very same sort of decisions? Even though we have this story, even though we can read about Lot, even though we, be, we are reminded about Lot, Lot just chose the logically best land. And he made the logically best decision. And it was a horribly bad decision. And this brings us to our final verses from our chapter today. Verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And the fact that we are confused by this chapter is evidence that we're no different than Abraham. We don't understand the why of verses 14 through 18. We don't understand why this has all happened. But you see, back in chapter 12, when, when God called Abram, the unconditional election that we see there, he gave Abram a command. He told him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's verse 1. And then in verse 4, we're told, so, Abraham, so Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. The command of God was to separate from his kindred, to lead the land that he knew. And then came the promise that was attached to that command. Verse 2 of chapter 12. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And this explains why Abram took Lot with him. He used logic. Sarai is barren. That's one. God just made this promise to me to make me a great nation. That's the other one. Lot is my brother's son from the same family. I've been raising him. Abram took him and loved him like a son. One plus one equals two. And as I said earlier, that the famine, that the barrenness of Sarai, the threats by, uh, by death of, by the Egyptians, and even Lot himself, that these were all trees. The call of, of God in the life of Abram, that was the forest. Not 
not, not the promise of a family lineage or even a land. Both of those are merely representations, physical allusions to a spiritual truth of that forest. And that we are no different than Abraham in not seeing the forest for the trees as evidence within, this tr- within the church today. Evidence in this controversy that happens concerning the nation Israel and how fixated we get on that nation. The promise of God to that people and what is called replacement theology today. We don't see that while the promise is made to Abram and then the physical people called Jews, while they were for them here in this realm, we can't see that they are merely representative of the eternal promise to the real people and the real land that is being given to the father Abram. The real forest that all these trees are just part of. We can't see that they are physical representations of the doctrines of grace in action. But that this is reality is evidenced to us in the life of Christ. And the promises and the truth told by him to us. Grab your Bibles. I want to show you. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8. Um, let's, yep, let's pick up on ver, in verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. I want to stop there for a second. I want to direct your attention to just what has just been told to us in the Bible. The people that Jesus is speaking to are Jews, by birth, children of the promise to Abraham. And the Bible has just said that these Jews believed Jesus. Okay, now we can continue on. Verse 14, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what was it that these Jews are said to believe that Jesus said? Well, if you go back up a few verses, you know it is what it is that they believe. They believe that Jesus had just schooled the religious leaders who liked to separate themselves from the huddled masses, who liked to proclaim their righteousness in the opening and visible giving of alms, who liked those prestigious places afforded and, and given to them. He had just told them that they were not the keepers of all knowledge and that they were wrong about God. And these Jews, the huddled masses, what we would call the average church members, they believed Jesus. And it was to these people who believed that their, their leaders were wrong about God. They believed Jesus was right about what he said concerning them. But when Jesus directs a true statement at them, those that believe when he tells them the truth, well, what did they believe concerning what he said about them? Verse 33, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham 
and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now, anybody who has any amount of knowledge about history knows that even at that time, that very moment that Jesus was speaking to these people, they were a conquered people. Every single one of them could at any moment be forced to carry all the equipment of a Roman soldier for up to a mile just because he wanted them to. They were allowed to live in their own land. They were allowed to have a puppet government. They were allowed to worship their God. And these things were only allowed to them by another country that was a ruler and master over them. They were looking at the tree. Because this isn't the freedom that Jesus is speaking of. It's promising to those who abide in his word which he readily acknowledges in verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do not have, um, you do not, <clears throat> you do not, um, and you do not what you have heard from your father. What he does is he points to the forest, and all they see is that tree. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And this verse is a pivotal statement that we're going to come back to in a minute. Verse 41, you were doing the works of your, what your father did. And this is that contrast of what Abraham did. And then we come to the reaction of these natural-born Jews. Natural-born children of Abraham. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They took offense. And they slandered the one that they previously believed. But this offense and their slander doesn't do anything to the one that they should have believed in and not just believed. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? There's this question, and he gives the answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are from your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. And now we can go back to those pivotal verses in John chapter 8. The contrast between that Jesus has made between the physical children of Abram and the true children of Abraham. What was it that Jesus said that Abraham did that was different than these people? 
That's told to us in verse 37. You seek to kill me because my word is not, finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. These people believed in their head and not in their soul. These people were still, even though they were the physical children of Abram, even though they were the promised people, living in the promised land. They were still outside of God, even though they were the called of God. They are the proof text of Matthew twenty-two fourteen that tells us that many are called, but few are chosen. But how are we then to understand the belief of Abram in contrast to the belief that these people had? How do we see the forest for the trees? We must look at what the Bible says of Abraham. He was called in chapter 12, verse 1, and then he went. And then in chapter 15 of Genesis, we will read, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness, verse 6. Again, that's a pivotal verse. It happens, we're going to read that again in a bit. The belief that Abraham had was different than the belief that these people had concerning Jesus. What's the difference? Well, later, in the book of Hebrews, we're told, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Jacob and Isaac, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is of God. That's Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. And in them, did you hear the difference? It was revealed to us in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. And that's what we saw happen to him in, Hebrew, or in Genesis chapter 12. And then verse 9 of Hebrews 11. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And this is what is said happens after Abraham finally obeys God in the separation of him and his kindred that was commanded of him in Genesis chapter 12. And it was God that separated them. He used that famine and then the physical conditions to separate them. He used these things to show Abram, to reveal to him that he, Abram, was trusting in appearances and that he was trying to give God a hand in that person of Lot. And he had to obey God and separate from Lot. And Abram stayed in the land and relied upon the Lord to make him a mighty nation, as told to us in, in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was no longer looking at the trees so much, but at the forest that was the creator of those trees. He no longer held on to that tree of Lot as being the means that God would bring about that promise that he made. And even later, when that son of promise 
was finally revealed in Isaac, even then he was still looking to the forest and not the tree that the son of I, that son Isaac could have been. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19 tells us, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And we must admit that we really are no different than Abram. We actually are no different than those Jews that wanted to kill Jesus outside of God. Outside of God, we are not children of God. We are of our Father, just as they were. Outside of the choosing of God, we may be called. We may be one of those people that grew up in church our whole life, consider ourselves a Christian because my mom and my dad, my grandma and my grandpa, my aunties and my uncles, they're all Christian. I go to church every Sunday. But that you can't believe proves that you are not of the chosen. But even in our belief, and this is one of the things that we're supposed to see here, even in our choosing, we can very often still not see the forest for the trees. You see, we very often look at the actions of Abram, as the at the faith of Abram. And then we commend Abram. We desire to be like Abram. We tell ourselves, I need to do these steps like he did. We tell others, be like Abram, because Abram, he's the man. We look to this man as we do David, and we desire to be like them. And dear ones, these are trees, merely trees. Listen to Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember that Genesis chapter 15? Remember I told you we were going to come back to that? That's verse 6. And it is a rhetorical question that Paul is posing to these foolish Galatians. He's asking it to them. Or he's telling it to them as if, the, asking them, was it the works that Abraham did that made him the father of faith or not? And the answer is clearly not. He believed God and that was what was counted to him as righteousness. And it was this truth that the Apostle Paul uses as the basis for the New Testament proof of salvation. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And it's the scripture foretelling and foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those are verses 6 through 9 through Galatians. And these verses clearly link the salvation of God, the salvation that can only come in the belief that Jesus is the Christ of God that the truth of the doctrines of grace are not just a New Testament truth. But still not convinced? 
Well, turn with me once again a little bit further to the right, Romans chapter 4. I want us to believe that the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament, that there are no two plans of salvation, that the salvation of God has always been the same. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Verse 1. Our forefather according to the flesh. Now, the book of Romans was written to a church that was located in Rome at that time, and it was a church that was made up of people who were both Jewish by birth and religion, and Gentiles by birth and religion. Both had been regenerated by God, and both were believing in God. But here, Paul is addressing that first set of believers, those that were Jewish by descent, those that Paul said that Abraham was their forefather according to the flesh. Verse, beginning in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And once again, Paul is using that same logic and argument that he used with us Christians in Galatia, here with Jewish Christians in Rome. And by the way, Verse 4 here, the one that tells us that the one who works, that his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. That should really scare the hell out of you. Because Paul is going to use that same logic at the end of this discourse with these men when he tells them that if they're coming to God based upon their works, anything that they do, that this is sin, and that they need to understand that the wages of sin is death. Chapter 6, verse 23. And then Paul, speaking of Abraham, back in chapter 4, speaking of Abraham and his life, says this, beginning in verse 5 of Romans 4. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, this is where we get all confused in our Christianity, because we think that, when God saves a person, that, that we, we do work, we do different things. But when he first saves you, what work do you do? And this is the whole point of this argument, is, is our salvation, is our walk with Lord based on our works or based on his salvation? And then, just as an added bonus in Romans 4, though, Paul's going to throw in another famous Jew to these Jewish Christians. Beginning in verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one who God counts righteousness apart from works, when he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verses 9 through 12. I'm sorry, verses 6 through 8. And then verses 9 through 12 of Romans 4 are just a rhetor more of a, a rhetorical um, argument concerning those two men. And in there, he speaks about circumcision. And you're thinking, well, Abraham precedes Moses, though. 
Moses was a lawgiver. There was no law given before Abraham, before Moses, I mean. And if that's your thinking, though, you're going to be wrong. Because there was a law given, and it was given before Abram. That law was given to Adam. Do not eat. And he broke that law, and he died. But in Romans 4, what is that whole thing that, that Paul is talking about, about this whole circumcision? What, what was that all about? Well, as the Bible tells us, it was the sign of that covenant that God's going to make with Abraham because it's, his covenant hadn't been given to him yet. It's an outward sign. And it was a mark that was given to all males of the Jews according with the law. And even though it predates the law, it was made part of the law, as told to us in Deuteronomy 10.16. And it was an outward sign. It was an outward sign that these men, these people of the children of Abram, physical children of Abraham. It was an outward sign that they performed concerning laws that they never kept. And they thought, they thought because they had those laws, because they had that sign, they thought, I'm in. But Paul, in verses 13 through 15 of Romans 4, he redirects our attention back to the reality of God. Picking up in verse 13, he says, For the promises to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it was adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Once again, that creator gave man a law, just a single law that we didn't keep. But these men, these Jewish Christians, they had all Ten Commandments and all the laws surrounding the Ten Commandments made by the Jewish religions. And you're wondering, what is this, why are you even talking about this? Because saints, we have to remember, don't forget, the apostles, the first Christians, the first century Christians, they didn't see themselves as separate from the Jews. They didn't see Christianity as a new religion. They saw themselves as the fulfilling of the Jewish religion, that we really are the true Jews. Which is why this whole issue of keeping the law is such a big deal in the New Testament. Why Paul has to redirect their attention over and again. Verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares with faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then Paul finishes his argument concerning the how of salvation, using Abraham as a litmus test of salvation, verses 18 through 25. In hope he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. be. And he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, when he wasn't looking at the logical anymore. 
when he, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Again, saints, as Christians, we can't use logic and trump God in that. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, both of those things were actual physical things that happened. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who, Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see that P in the tulip, the perseverance of the saints? That P is, is the truth of the faith of Abraham. And it's the truth of King David. It's the truth of the Apostle Peter, who denied Jesus three times in one night because of some silly little girl. It's the truth of this Apostle Paul, who hated God, hated his people, who in his zeal and hatred towards God killed his people. And none of these people's actions, the denial of Peter, the running away of the disciples, the murder of the people of God, none of them derailed the salvation of God. And none of these actions of man could prevent the salvation of God or remove the salvation of God. They, like the events in the life of Abraham and David, those ones that cause us to wonder at the stupidity of of these men, the sin of these men, they are there. They are given to us in order that we can wonder. Not at their stupidity or their hard hearts or even their wonder at their lack of faith. But cause, they're, they're given to us to cause us to wonder at the God who made these men, who allowed these men, who caused these men to persevere to the end. Because you see, if faith needed, if that faith needed to persevere to the end was left in the hands of Abraham, even if only 1% of it, if God said, I'm going to give you 99% of the faith and I'm going to give you 99% assurance that you're going to make it to the end, if it was just that 1%, if that was left in the hands of Abram, he was a dead man and he was going straight to hell. The salvation of God belongs to God. And it's when you see that then you can understand that the God that saved you is going to cause you to persevere to the end. And you don't feel like it. You wonder, how can I be saved when I think these things? 
am I saved? I don't even want to read the Bible. I don't really want to go to church. And yet, you get up and you open your Bible. You drive yourself to church, even when you don't feel like it. And you are proving the perseverance of the saints over and over and over again. Saints, our walk with the Lord begins with Him. And it ends with Him. And everything in the middle is Him. If He has saved you, if you know in your heart, He saved me, I know it. I see Christ, I see Jesus as the Savior, as God. I get fuzzy on the rest of the stuff. Know this, is that in your sanctification process, there may be some Egypts, there may be some lots, there may be some famines, but if he has made that happen in your life, you will persevere. You will. We have his word on it. That's why we are given these stories. These accounts, they're not stories, forgive me. These are actual accounts of actual people that actually lived and actually believed and are actually in heaven. And they're given to us so that we can know and wonder at the forest that has caused us and hopefully not focus in so much on the things that are in front of us that we that are those trees that we missed the forest. Let's pray.